We were going to be in Genesis chapter 3, so first book of the Bible, third chapter, Genesis chapter 3, 15. We've been in a series of sermons on the book of Galatia, but as is our practice, we're going to have a series of sermons about Advent Christmas, and so we'll begin that today and go through Christmas Sunday. So Christmas is on a Sunday. And it's good to gather on Christmas Sunday for worship, so we'll have church regular time. And so hopefully you'll join us then. But today we begin our series uh, of Advent sermons. When I was seven, I believe we moved from uh, a house that we rented on William Street. Is that right, Mom? Somewhere around there. And it was next door to a man nicknamed Tombstone because he was the tombstone maker in Randolph. So in his front yard, he had all the tombstones and his shop was there and we would go over there and his assistant would have mints in his pocket. And I don't remember his name. Anyways, uh, that has nothing to do with anything other than we moved from that house to our house at 239 West Stroud Street where I grew up in and my mom recently moved from. And when we moved... uh, Because moving is traumatic, apparently, we got a dog. Copper, uh, who was a mutt from the Humane Society who had been mistreated. And apparently he was struck with brooms because whenever you brought out a broom, he would cower. And so it took the dog a long time to trust us, to trust that we wouldn't do what previous owner or owners had done to him or her. I'm not really sure. Her. And so maybe you've been like that. You've been mistreated, let's say at work. You had a bad work experience and you get a new job and it takes you a while to trust your supervisor or coworker. Maybe you've been in a relationship like that where you have to learn to trust. You have to learn when someone says something that they'll do it. You have to learn that they aren't like the other people. This is a picture, if you will, of being a Christian. Now, it isn't as though God has mistreated us or has broken his promises, and yet, because of this world, and because we live in a world where people fail us, systems, organizations fail us, we have our own failures and sins, it really is something for us to trust. And so being a Christian is learning to trust that what God says, he'll do. And that what God promises, we can take to the bank. They'll be true. And that the life of a Christian is just that. It's learning that everything that God says in his word is as true as true can be. And that you can trust it. And that even the promises of eternal life, when you're on death's doorstep, you can actually trust that what God promises you in Christ will prove true on the other side of that doorway. And so everything in your life is preparing you to trust his promise in that real, significant, most intense moment of needing faith in death. 
what I want to do for Advent is take you through, what we want to do in Advent is take you through some of the major promises that God has made concerning His Son well before His Son came in hopes that you would be strengthened in your faith to trust God and His Word. And so that's it. So the first promise we see in the Bible of the coming of Christ takes place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So this is not hundreds of years. This is thousands of years, at least two or more, before, or uh, 4,000 or more, uh, before the coming of Christ, the first promise. Way back then, regarding Christ and that God keeps. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at promises before Christ that God then keeps in Christ in order, hopefully, to help you have faith in him. All right, so let me read, and then I want to uh, give you some background here, and then I want to look at what we learn about God here and uh, what we learn about the promise that's surprising here. I'm just going to read this verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world where, and in lives with our own sin, where we find it easy to mistrust and find it very difficult to trust. And so teach our hearts to stand firm, to stand trusting in your words. May we rejoice even at your word like one who finds a great treasure. Teach us to love it. Teach us to many times throughout the day praise you for your righteous word. And so give us peace because we love it. Teach us to hope in your salvation, to keep your testimonies. And so God, please help us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we're going to consistently see as we look at these promises that God's promises are always given when you should least expect them, when we're at our worst. So we see that right away here in Genesis. You'll remember what's going on here, I hope. The first two chapters of the Bible concern God's gracious creation of everything and then giving everything that he's made to Adam and Eve as if here, this is yours. Work at keeping it. And so Genesis 1 and 2 are the Christmas present being designed, created, fashioned, and then given to Adam and Eve who are, set, who are told that you are princes and princesses overall. It's yours. You have dominion. You have rule over it. And what do Adam and Eve do with this great, gift, this gracious inheritance of the world. What do they do with it? They ruin it. So they're given three positive things to do, get married, have some kids, work, and keep the Sabbath, and one negative, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Those three. And the one negative is the real test. And of course, when they are tempted at the beginning of chapter 3, they fall. And so, Genesis 3 opens as like a bleak, gray, sunless January day. 
it's bad. They're in misery. And they're hiding. They're ashamed. They become aware of their guilt. They become aware of their nakedness. And they kind of half-heartedly, immodestly cover themselves only in their privates with loin cause, and God comes. That's where we are in our text. God has come. He has personally come. He's speaking with the man and the woman. And now he is judging them. And he speaks verse first in verses 14 and 15 to the serpent. And this word to the serpent, this judgment on the serpent in verse 15 contains the first promise in the Bible of grace, of redemption. And so again, in the midst of maybe the most awful rebellion against God, maybe second only to the actual killing of Jesus Christ, God comes and gives a promise. So can you chew on that one? That this is part of what we understand God's grace to be. It's when we're at our worst that God comes and says, I'm going to deal with your sin, but here's promise. Here's grace. Do you understand that about God? Do you understand that the grace of God is given in the midst of our great sin? We'll see this in all the promises. When does God come and promise Noah that he'll never destroy everything again? Right after he's destroyed everything. And right in the midst of Noah sinning pretty greatly. When does God come to Abraham? Where does he find Abraham? He's an idol worshiper in a pagan land. All of the promises that preceded seem like they're dead. And then God gives great promises to Abraham. When does God come to Israel and promise them everything? When they're in slavery after hundreds of years. Again and again and again we see this in the Bible. We see it here right at the beginning of the Bible. And so... We see God's word determines a new reality. He speaks a promise. So he speaks judgment, first to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. But within God's judgment is incredible grace. So one way to look at it is Genesis 3.15 was the beginning of Christmas. This was it. I want to unpredict that in a more, but it's a promise of one who would be born of a woman who would destroy the serpent, and all that had just happened here. So Genesis 3.15 is the first promise that God made that would be fulfilled when his son was born of a woman, born of a virgin named Mary. So Christmas began here. So does God keep his promises? He does. So what I want to do first is show three realities that we learn about God. I I want you to know God more here. God is revealing himself to us. I want you to know him more. And then I want to look at three surprises that we see in the promise. So first, we learn that God's word is reality. 
In, ver- in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is here speaking. He speaks and what he says is. Now, I know that you know that. But as we consider Christmas and the reality that all of our hope is given in what God's word says about what his son came to do, I want to remind us right away at this first Christmas promise that your only hope in this world is what God says. That when you need hope, the place to go is God's word. And so Adam and Eve needed hope here. They were cowering in the shadows, covering their private parts, wondering what God was going to do. They were without any hope. They had no expectation except death. Because God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And God's word speaks here of judgment. She'll have pain and childbearing. He'll barely be able to provide for himself and his family because the ground will now have against him rather than for him. But in the midst of it is this promise of a woman who would have a child who would destroy the devil, but he himself would be bruised. God's word is our hope. God's word is true. Do you believe that? What is this season about rather than turning to God's word to see what hope we have in Christ? And here is the first word of hope in Christ. So that's one thing we learn about God. God's word determines all reality, and in it we find our hope. And so I know I get on you about this, but are you reading your Bible? Are you giving yourself to consuming the Word of God as if it is your hope? Second, we do see a reality of God here is that He is a Father who disciplines. He says, I I don't know if these words will hit you. Listen to what He says here. I will, this is God speaking, I will put enmity. God is saying that his judgment for the sin of the serpent, for the sin of the woman, for the sin of the man, is now this world, by his word, will be filled with fighting. Some of you had an uncomfortable Thanksgiving because you're with people that you have a history of enmity with. And some of you kind of wish that you didn't have a relative who said, let's all get together. You'd rather you didn't. Or you rather that certain persons were not there. We see the fighting all around us, not only in warfares, but in our culture, in our lives, in our own hearts. Why? Because God is a judge. Because God hates sin. Now, there is good news in this word of enmity. It's that God put this world at war in order that we might hope for the next world. 
because here we have no lasting city. Right? God is already saying here at the beginning that this world, because of sin, will never be what it should have been. And so those of you who love him can't have your hope here but there. And the constant difficulty here is to you is to motivate you to look to that day. Already here. He's a father who disciplines. He's holy and just. He hates sin. He'll destroy it all. And so two things from that. Take care as we enter into the season of lights and shiny things and beauty to humble yourselves under God's fatherly discipline. Don't despise it. Take Hebrews 12 as a help to your Christmas celebration that our Father is a Father who's proving our sonship by His discipline of us. What discipline? That's always the question, isn't it? Well, just all the stuff in your life. Now, it might not be discipline for an exact sin so that this happens, but isn't God constantly disciplining us? And so have faith for that. It's not strange what is happening to you. It would be strange if God left you without discipline. That's why he's given you a wife. That's why he's given you children. That's why he's given you the people that you work with. That's why he's given you the bad toe or the bad tooth or the bad heart. He's disciplining us. Second, what we can learn from this is we do need to fear God. We, there is no fear of God in our day. There, there is no fear of God in the church. There is only wishy-washy, light and frivolous, cheap, costless Christianity where God is the eternal Santa Claus who ho-ho-hos and if you're a good little boy or a little girl, you'll get all that your hearts desire. There's no fear of God. I don't know if you can put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes here. This would be terrifying. And so learn to fear God. He's not a permissive, cheap father, stepfather who winks at your destructive sin. He, it says will judge us for every word even spoken in secret, every intent of our heart. So we do need to learn already here. He comes and deals with sin. Now the good news, of course, is that we won't be judged along with the rest of the world if we're in Christ. Our sin in that sense has already been judged when Jesus hung on the cross. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the wrath of God upon the Son of God for you in your place for your sin. So we are not condemned in that way. We have no expectation of that condemnation of sentencing to hell along with those who are apart from Christ. That has been taken care of. And yet we still need to walk humbly before God and trembling in the fear of God. So first... We learn that God's word shapes reality and is to be our hope. Second, we learn that we do need to 
hate our sin, to embrace God's fatherly discipline, to fear him. Third, I want you to see that God is not far off from you. I've been teaching a class in Sunday school on the covenant of grace. This is the beginning of the covenant of grace. Covenants deal with God's promises. God's promises to bind himself to his people by blood. And the way that God communicates this covenant grace to us is to come to us and tell us about it. And don't we see that here? Who came and spoke directly to Adam and Eve this word of promise? Did he send an angel? Did he send anybody else? No. At the heart of the covenant of grace are these words, I will be their God and they will be my people. And so he comes to Adam and Eve, his people, two people that I think we'll see in heaven one day because he clothed their nakedness at the end of this chapter. He clothed them. He shed the blood of animals and clothed them head to toe, covering their nakedness, covering their shame, forgiving their sin. And he came and said, listen, what you've done is awful. You don't even know how awful what you've done is, how bad your sin is, what it'll wreck. But I'll, I'll undo it all. I'll redeem it all. And he comes himself to tell them. And so already in this promise, we see the hint of, it will be God himself who comes. What's our favorite word during Christmas? Emmanuel. Why? What does it mean? God with us. What does that mean? It means God's with us. Is he with us? How do you know that God is with you? How do you know? How do you know that God is right now here with you? Because he said so in his word. Because he proved over and over and over again in these promises that he himself will personally come and rescue you. He's not far off. And this is to be our greatest comfort. He is near to those who love him. Our hope is that he is our God and we are his people. And the promise here deals with the promise of a son who will crush, bruise the head of the serpent through his own suffering, his heel being bruised. And that is the promise of Christ. And don't forget who Christ is. Who is he? He's God. Right, sweetie. He is God. But he's man, isn't he? Born of a virgin coming to the world himself personally. Why? To dwell with his people. Because God loves his people. God is near his people. Our hope is for the return of the Son of God, of the making of all things new, which is contained in this promise already, and we to dwell with him, no longer by faith, but with our, to see him with our own eyes. This is the truth throughout the Bible. God comes to dwell with his people. Why the tabernacle? Why this tent that God's people would carry around with them wherever they went? So that God could be right there among his people. 
Why when they're finally settled in the land of Israel and they're a nation, why a temple? No longer a tabernacle. So that God could dwell right there among his people. Why no more temple? Why now this? Because God dwells within his people by his spirit. And that particularly in the Bible seems to be true when we're gathered together to worship him. And maybe even more so when you hear his word being preached and we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. So do you hope in the nearness of God? How about you who are brokenhearted? Maybe in despair. What's the promise in the Bible for you? That God is near to the brokenhearted. So that's what we learn about God here. There's more we can learn. We see God's word determines reality. It's our hope. We see that God is a fatherly judge who will discipline our sin and so we should fear him. And we see that God is near. God is near. So let's look now specifically at what this promise is. We see these realities about God. What do we see in the promise? And specifically... There's some surprises here. And, and one of the things to understand about Scripture and understand about God is he's often doing things in a way that we wouldn't do them. Almost always. He, he doesn't choose the firstborn son, the rightful heir. He, he always almost chooses the second, the schemer. He doesn't choose the mightiest, prettiest, wealthiest nation, Egypt. He, chooses a little pathetic family and no bads, Israel. So there's surprises. There, there's some here too. First, I've already referenced it, but look at what he says. He, his judgment, but also his grace, is the conflict. Now, how many of you would prefer peace to enmity? Right? We all would. In fact, is there a greater desire than we have with peace? We want peace. Now, we often want peace without any suffering. But because of God's justice, the only way to peace is through conflict. The only way to peace is through conflict. The only way to peace with God is God judging our sin through the conflict with his son on the cross, bearing our sin. You can't come to God but through death. So the only way to get to God is through war. God is a God of warfare. We see it throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. He's defeating his enemies. And so that's the promise here. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's warfare between the offspring of the woman, the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, and the serpent. And the surprise is that Christ wins by dying. Christ wins by yielding. <laughs> Isn't that something? He doesn't win by taking Satan's head and lopping it off with his sword. He wins by being crucified on a cross and death. Why did God do it that way? 
Why does God do it that way? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians so that he can shut our mouths. Because we think we know how to do it. Because the greatest weakness of God is more powerful than the greatest power of his most vicious enemy, the devil. In death he conquers. And so God, the promise of salvation comes only through conflict. That's true in the cross, but it's also true in our lives. How many of you have read Hebrews 11 in the wall of faith, this hymn of rose of faith, this kind of Canton, Ohio hall of fame of faith? What happens to those people in their lives? Anything good happen in Hebrews 11? <laughs> some are eaten by lions, some are sawn in two. Some go about looking for a home and never finding it. Some dying, having never received the promise. It's like, I, no thanks. What? Who would sign up for a life like that? And yet, isn't this what we're taught? You can't follow me unless you'll take up your cross. You can't be mine unless you'll hate your own life, even the lives of your family. So you must be at conflict with yourself. You must be at war with yourself. You're put to put to death the misdeeds of the body. You're to put on Christ-like love and humility and compassion and tenderness and service. You're to put to death lying and to put on telling the truth. You're to put to death lusting and to put on chastity. You're to put to death greed and wanting, wanting, wanting and to put on contentment. You're to put to death grumbling and put on gratitude. You're to put to death gossip and to put on building one another up with godly words. You're to put to death nagging your husband to put on respecting him. You're to put to death being harsh with your wife and put on being gentle and treating her as the precious daughter of Christ that she is. Children, you're to put to death rebelling against your parents and constantly saying, why? And you're to put on, yes, dad, yes, mom, and doing it right away with a happy heart. Why? The sin kills. So we have to fight. That's a part of the promise. Conflict. Do you believe that? Now, in our day in the church, the conflict is always applied to the church rabble-rousing against the civil leaders. We need to talk real loud and big about how bad masks are and how bad this is and how bad Biden is and blah, blah, blah. And yes, of course, the church needs to speak truth to civil authority. But the fight always begins here in our own hearts with our own planks and our own eyes. But the hope here in verse 15 is that the fighting will one day end. The warfare will one day be done. In Isaiah, the swords are turned into what? Plowshares, right? 
The children get to play at the mouths of the dens of the cobras. The lion and the lamb get to frolic together in the pasture. The warfare ends. Why? Because Christ kills all of his enemies. Because he returns and throws them forever into the pit. Right? That's our hope. That's the day we look forward to. We're still in Advent. We're still waiting for Christ's coming. What is he going to do when he comes back? He's going to go to war. What is the church to do now? Turn to Romans 16, verse 20. Who are we now? Throughout the Old New Testament, this promise of Christ subduing his enemies and being put under his feet is applied to Christ consistently. 1 Corinthians 15, all the enemies will be under his feet. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that promise is applied to us, the church. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We are the church militant. We have a fight on our hands. We have to stand firm for truth at great cost. We fight with prayer. We fight to subdue our own sin and to love our brothers and sisters enough to help them in their battle, to keep their marriages together, their love for their children alive. We fight. We fight to love each other and serve each other and care for each other and meet each other's needs at our own expense. We fight to help people die in the Lord. And that fighting is crushing Satan under our feet. We're part of this battle. So that's a surprise. The second surprise in Genesis 3 is that it'll happen through childbearing. The very thing our world hates more than anything is a mother's womb and the children that come from it. We hate fruitfulness. And yet God is a fruitful God. Jesus is the most fruitful of all. The amount of fruit that comes from his death and resurrection is like sand on the seashore and stars in the sky. He is a fruitful God. He is bringing many sons and daughters into the kingdom. And Adam and Eve, at the very beginning of the Bible, they were told to multiply, to fill the earth. And even after sin, that promise holds. She'll have pain in childbearing. And yet it's through her work of faith, through marriage, husband and wife coming together in a holy union, having children through those offspring, through an offspring, through a birth, childbearing, Satan will be crushed. In Christian weddings, like we had yesterday, one of the things that we must do is remind the church, why God gave us marriage. There are three reasons, three purposes explicit in Scripture. I know I've said this before. What are those reasons? Companionship. It's not good that the man be alone. There is this intimacy and enjoyment, hopefully for you, (laughs) in your marriage. Helping each other. Second, in 1 Corinthians, it's to avoid fornication. 
If you're not given the gift of chastity and you're not under control, you should get married. Have all the marital relations you want. Third, which is really the first, childbearing, procreation, children. And so we see here in the promise that the way that God is going to save his people is through the birth of a child. And so dads and moms, having children is a great work of faith. Raising children to love Jesus is a great work of faith. And yet in our world, we don't see that as part of marriage. We see it as like an option, like an add-on, if at all. When you get around to when everything else is in place, then we'll have children. And yet isn't this promise elevating the good gift of children? Now, if you are thinking, you'll think, yeah, but the way Jesus came in the world wasn't like normal. Joseph hadn't yet known his wife. Well, that's the surprise here, isn't it? Consistently throughout the Bible, we see God moving along his saving his people through miraculous births. What's the first miraculous birth we see in the Bible? Well, we could say Seth. We, the first two sons, Cain and Abel, who was the son of promise? Who was the one through whom Christ was going to come? Abel. And what did the offspring of the devil do to Abel? Kill him. So Satan's always been at war with God's line, with God's chosen line. So it looked like the promise was nothing, kaput, finished already. Until God gave him Seth. A surprise. Right? But how about Abraham and Sarah? A barren woman who's old. And she has a son. No, wonderful. If you're doing the Bible reading program, you read Ruth recently. One of the sweetest books in all the Bible. Ruth wasn't Jewish. She was a, a pagan a Gentile. And yet she ends up marrying, what's the guy's name? Boaz, who is the grandfather to King David, maybe great-grandfather. So this Gentile woman ends up marrying the line of David through which Jesus would come. Miraculous, wonderful. And then, of course, you get to Jesus' birth. A virgin woman, Having never lain with a man, conceived a baby who is both God and man by the power of the Holy Spirit. And doesn't God magnify the good gift of children and a woman's womb and having and raising children and giving yourself to that work? Sisters, it is a really, really good work. It is a glorious work. And I would include adopting and fostering in the same category. So that's the second surprise. The third surprise is that this one promised would himself suffer. His heel would be bruised. Jesus was born of a woman in Hebrews 2.11, fully God, just like us. Through death, through death, 
he would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Why did Jesus come? Why did he take on a body? I mean, he was fully God in every way that God is and fully man, just like you and I, flesh and bones, nerves, blood vessels, a heart pumping, lungs taking in oxygen, expelling carbon dioxide, a brain, synapses firing, everything like you and I. Why did he, what was the reason that the eternal son of God humbled himself and took on this? For what purpose? There's only one. There's only one. Why? To die for us. To suffer. To be bruised. He was born of a woman in order to die for you. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. That was promised here. In his death, in his suffering, he would kill death. That was the only way. That was promised here. This is the Christmas promise. So what's our one response to this? Well, hopefully it's gratitude. What does God want from you? Turn to Psalm 50 in closing. Again, in our Bible reading program, on Thanksgiving Day, I think this was an optional reading. Psalm 50 deals with God's people gathering to worship. Look at verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So God's people are gathered together in worship just like we are. And in verse 7, God is coming and rebuking. In verse 8, he doesn't want our sacrifices. He doesn't accept sacrifices from us. He's not about religiosity, going through the motions, doing things half-heartedly, worshiping him with our lips and our hearts are far from him. What does he want? Look at verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why does he bring out thanksgiving? He does it at the very end too in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving at his sacrifice glorifies me. Can you thank God truly with a heart that's far from him? You can't. You can't be grateful and be a hypocrite. You can't be grateful and be playing at this. So what do we do in response to this magnificent promise right at the beginning? We just sit back in awe. Why would you do this? Why would you promise this? Why would you create a world with all of this in order to bring your son into it to sacrifice him for us so we might know his love? That's what Christmas is about, that you might know the love of God for his chosen, beloved people and that we might respond with one thing. Thank you. Thanks. So kids, you can apply that. Your mom and dad would just really be helped if you just say thanks. Not, yeah, but I wanted. Just 
thanks. Husbands to your wives, maybe at work. We should be more grateful, but the ultimate thanks is to God because he promised and delivered his son. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word. Thank you that you make promises and keep them. And thank you that you make promises that we are very undeserving and that you keep them all by your grace. And so teach us to see with eyes of faith what you've done and to respond with gratitude. And so open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to receive this great gift of your Son, this promise that he would destroy Satan, destroy death, and do it though he himself would die and yet be raised. And so God, give us hope in this promise. In Jesus' name, amen.